Howdy, everyone. Good morning. All right. At least I'm happy to be here. No, I'm just kidding. I know we all are. Hey, I want you to nudge the person next to him gently, right? I know we have some, some sibling genetics, too. Maybe some family members nudge him and say, you made it till the end. Just nudge him. You might have to be creative. Nudge him. You made it to the end. This is week seven of our series. I usually don't even preach a series that's this long, but it was so, so good. And you know what is it like in the back of my mind still? We might actually get back into this series over the summer because we may not be done yet. I don't even know. So, uh, so we're ending it for right now, and you made it to the end of this one. We'll see what God has for us in the future. But what we've said throughout these whole seven weeks, we've just saturated this, whether it was here or even in our, group, our community groups, even our social media presence. What we've said is a life of simplicity is to will and want one thing, Jesus Christ at the center. So if we could have anything or anyone, it's Jesus at the center. So we have really dug deeply into this idea of how material things try and stick to us. And yet, if you have a life of simplicity, we're not going to allow them to stick to us. Instead, maybe some of us, we feel like we have to accumulate, 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 and we, we just gather things in a way to try and meet some sort of satisfaction in our life or bring us happiness and those kinds of things. And yet, what we're saying is that a life of simplicity is will and want one thing. Even when other things try and take the center, we're going to cast those things out, right? And right. Amen. Yes. All right. Good. Wow. Tough crowd. That's all right, though. So we're going to cast those things out because we are striving for those of us who would say that we are followers of Jesus. We are striving for a lifestyle that is talked about that Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, where he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trusting God for all of the other things that we may need or want in the future. That is a paraphrase, but the beginning of it is locked in. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's Christ at the center. What I really, really um, have come to terms with is much of our spiritual life has, really comes down to our decisions. We, we make decisions, and those decisions, um, they, they help make who we are. We have really been digging deeply into this idea of the spiritual disciplines or spiritual formation for about three years, and there's no sign of that ending, in case you wondered, um, because what we've said all along is the habits that we have are, are things that reinforce who we become. The habits that we have reinforce who we become. So all of the habits that we have are because we make choices. We're constantly making choices or decisions. Some of you, you, you know, you got up this morning and, and, and I'm just so thankful that you're here. Some of you, like you ladies particularly, you had a really hard time choosing what to wear today. So you chose about three things and then it, and you're like, now you looked in the mirror. Did you do that? That, that's weird for me to do that. All right, put my hands down. I don't know, whatever that looks like for you. You got in front of the mirror, ah, I just don't like this today. I just don't like the way this looks on me today. So you take it off and you put something else on. And you chose clothes today. Woo, you're winning already, right? Slightly sarcastic, but true. You made choices, and you did. You all made a choice to be here or to at least listen to this or view this if you're viewing this online right now. Life is full of choices. Sometimes the choices that we make become vows, and sometimes those choices become promises, and sometimes those choices become oaths. Sometimes. Not all the time. 
So I just wanted to survey the crowd for everybody who is married or who hopes to maybe one day be married, and you're going to be choosing your wedding vows. So I just want to survey the crowd. I'm a traditional wedding guy, full transparency. Marla and I got married so young. I have no idea what I said. I think it was traditional. I am very traditional minded now. I'm traditional, like I'm very conservative theologically and practically. I'm very traditional. That's just kind of who I am. I'm a small town, like rural minded. I mean, I'm just that guy. And yet, if you're to ask me, hey, tell me like details about your wedding vows. I believe they were traditional. Maybe Marla would know better than me. But we were so young, it really didn't matter what he said. And I would have been like, just tell me when we're married, you know kiss your bride. I can do that. All right. And usually that means it's the end. So here we go. Smooch and it's all done and throw the rice. It's what we used to do. Now it's birdseed. Like all of that kind of stuff. We've been married a long time. Like, but here's what I know is some of you are traditional wedding vow people. If you are just like traditional wedding vow people like me, please raise your hand. I just want to acknowledge. There you go. Love that. Love that. Traditional wedding vow people. Some of you are non-traditional wedding vow people and that's cool too. I have some non-traditional wedding vows that, uh, that I have here, and some of these I know that will connect with you. Um, first one is this, uh, do you take me to be your hunk of hunk of burning love? So, if I officiate your wedding and you want me to, to actually say that in any other way, I just want you to know I'm going to laugh, so it's just let it be known. Apparently, they're a fan of Elvis. Um, second one is I promise to unclog the tub even though you're the only one of us with long hair. Probably want to have that one written down. Um, I promise to turn on the air conditioning when you are hot, even if I'm totally freezing. Ah, the concessions we make, right? I vow never to steal your covers. Wow. Unless you're hogging them. That's better put, yeah. Another one, apparently this is like a mishmash between somebody who really liked Journey, and then Van Morrison. I don't know exactly how this works. Some of you will be able to connect with this. Some of you won't. Um, I promise not to stop believing if you promise to be, if you promise to be my brown-eyed girl. And everybody said, ah, oh, there you go. I cannot even connect with that whatsoever. My wife has blue eyes, not brown eyes. It's out for me. But apparently, they love Journey and Van Morrison. And then the next one also has to do with an artist, and I can connect with this because I grew up in the Midwest. So this was, uh, this was one of the things that, that was vowed. I love you more than Midwesterners love John Cougar Mellencamp. So, now he's from Indiana, and I'm originally from Illinois, and let me tell you, there's some truth to that. I, I mean, I was so into John Cougar Mellencamp. Before his name was John Cougar Mellencamp, I was into John Cougar Mellencamp. When his name was John, what, what was the first one? Anybody know? John Cougar. And then he... I don't know what happened along the way. Then it was John Mellencamp, and he's like, nope, we're going full bore John Cougar Mellencamp. And maybe it's even longer now. I'm not even sure. But uh, another one is this. I, always, I, I promise to always respect your choice of music in the car when you're driving. But if you're not driving, however, I promise not to force you. Oh, this one, maybe you want to have written down. Gentlemen, you might want to have this one written down. I, I promise not to force you to watch a Gilmore Girls marathon. I can honestly say I've never seen a second of Gilmore Girls. And all God's men said, thank you. All right. And this one is the only one that I made up, and you'll know why. I promise to love you even though gravity wins. Even though gravity wins. 
I promise to love you even though gravity wins. There you go. We won't all be married. We're not, you know, we're not all even going to pursue marriage. But I do know this. We all do make vows or pledges or promises in one way or another. Even if it's not wedding vows, some of us say things like this, which is the same thing. It's, it's a vow or a pledge or promise or an oath, depending upon how we use it. People say this, well, you have my word on that. Or, well, my word is my vow. Or my word is my promise. Or you know me. If I say it, I'll do it. Or if you're ever in a a court hearing, they say, now you are under what? Oath. In other words, don't be lying, right? I want you to give it a true testimony. But everyone makes vows, even in, in, in vows, pledges, and promises we just do. And you may ask yourself, why do we feel the need to make promises or vows at all? Like, why do we even need to do that? I just love how, how transparent the Bible is. And some of you are going to look at this and be like, uh-uh. And then you're going to realize, uh-huh. Like, that's, some of that's true about me. The Bible is so transparent about our life because in Psalm 116, it gives the explanation. All men are liars. <laughs> so why do we have to say, well, I will put my hand on a stack of Bibles. That was the best Southern man I can get. Sorry, I haven't been here long enough. Give me some years. Like, I put my hand on a stack of Bibles. Why do we say things like this? In accordance with what God's Word says, that all men are liars, that, but we all tend to make promises that we fall short on. We all maybe say, well, I'm going to do that, or I, I'll promise I'll be there on time. And yet, the boss says, nope, you're working overtime, and you can't fulfill the promise. Or, or some of us are inclined to say, yes, I will, I will pledge this amount of money only to find out that that money was, was connected to a tax return. And then you went to, to the tax people and they said, uh, sorry, you have to pay this year. And then all that money that you pledged, then you're like, oh, man. And then you can't meet your commitment and it makes it seem like all men are liars. You may still not be convinced. Let me just ask you this. Who in here has ever bought a car like from a dealership, used car or a new car from a dealership? Raise your hand. There you go. There you go. How many times did you have to sign to get said car or truck or SUV? 482. You, you went through all of those pieces of paper, and it was such fine print, and they, you were just numbed over after you signed the third time, and you were just signing X's. It didn't even matter what it was. You're like X, X, and the, and the, and the print gets finer and finer and finer, all, and all the legal jargon, stuff you and I can't even understand unless, of course, you're like a lawyer, right? And you do that, and it's in saying... There has been so many people before us that have went to, bought that, to buy a car or truck and it's done what? They have not fulfilled their promise to pay it off. Same thing could be said about a house. Like when you go to buy a house, it's like, yes, I want this house. But then there's all of these other things. Right? And like you get this packet like, hey, we bought a house. I'm like, man. I got a hand cramp three times. I had to take a break, a water break, and I asked for a snack in the middle of going to the the people to sign the deeds. It's like it took forever. Because even they know that all men tend to be liars, or at least certain men or women tend to be liars in this way. Like there could be things that get in the way of us of not following through on what we said we were going to do. You may be asking yourself this, well, didn't Jesus say something about oaths? Didn't he say something about oaths? And he did. This is going to be our main passage. We're going to look at this. 
and a lot of other passages, actually. Um, we're going to see where all this takes us over this, the course of time. But Jesus did say some things about oaths, and I welcome you to go into the New Testament, into Matthew 5. And I am really excited about this particular passage and this particular talk because I've never even taught on oaths or vows or even promises like I'm going to talk about today. So I'm really, really stoked to bring the Word. I was really excited to get into it because uh, not only did, did my perspective get better, but also I know that yours is as well. I want to let you know the, the background of what's happening here because I know that some folks come from certain faith backgrounds and you already, when it comes to a vow, pledge, or promise, that someone came up and said, you should never, doesn't matter, don't sign anything, don't pledge your name to anything, don't do anything. You know, all you need is a handshake and a smile and I'm going to do it. You know, and that kind of thing. And I, and I understand the perspective there. And I, and I studied out the reason why some folks view it that way. I don't view it that way. And I think I'm going to show you scripturally why I don't view it that way. But I want us to look at this particular passage because this will enlighten our understanding as to why Jesus responded so harshly. There was a group of religious leaders that Jesus was addressing he was addressing them, but also the people in the Sermon on the Mount, though he was just communicating to a bunch of different people. But among them are the teachers of the law, or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who would, were just curious. But they were more curious about Jesus' teachings just so they could say something against it, just so they could be against him. And then ultimately, they would be the ones responsible for crucifying him. So the part of what they would do is they, uh, the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders at the time, they were corrupt. They had taken God's ideal from the Old Testament, and they had just added on a bunch of extra laws, a bunch of man-made laws. And around church circles, they call that what? Legalism. So and then it became a bunch of about rule-keeping, like if you keep the rules, then you're good with God. And if you don't keep the rules, you're not good with God. Here's the complicated part. If it's man-made rules, how do you know which rules actually get you to God? So Jesus, much of Jesus' teaching was to correct the teachers of the law because they had twisted the truth. So there is, uh, there is a balanced teaching of vast pledges and promises in the Old and New Testament. I'm going to show some. It's not going to be complete. I don't have time to show you all of them because there are so many. But particularly, these teachers of the law, part of the Jewish code, um, they called it the Mishnah, was uh, there was a whole section on oaths. And it was so hard to understand because one rabbi, would, he would read it and he would interpret it with this certain law or requirement. And then another one would read it this way. So people didn't know what the truth was. Instead, they just looked at the laws or the rules and they're like, well, I guess I'll just follow his rules. I hope it's right. Much of Jesus' teaching was to correct that. So this is, this is something that, that would have happened in their day. A rabbi might, uh, might say, well, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound to your vow. So, so a rabbi may say, a teacher, that's rabbi means teacher, it may say, well, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound to your vow. But if you look toward Jerusalem, then you are bound to your vow. Think how complicated this is. So if all of a sudden you're like, you're like in the vicinity, but you're pointed over here. And Jerusalem was over here, and you say you're going to do something. They would say, that part of the rabbi's instruction would be like, no, you're looking over here, so you don't actually have to 
fulfill that, that oath at all. But if you're looking over here toward Jerusalem, man, you're locked in. You've got to follow through on that oath. So think how complicated that would be and think how much people would twist this. So now let's go in to see what Jesus said specifically. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. One of the things that people should recognize if you're a follower of Jesus and you're seeking a life of simplicity and you're seeking a true discipleship and to be formed into more into the image of Christ is for people to look at you, people to look at me, and they would say, that's Chad Zook. He is going to stand for truth. And if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Like people should just know that about me and they should know that about you. That, that this person, that they, it is just let their yes be yes and their no be no. And they, we should just be identified with that. And if we have a life of simplicity where we can will and want one thing, Jesus Christ at the center, which means we don't have to hide from the truth. We don't have to run from the truth. Instead, we can let our yes be yes and our no be no. And that we would be known by the truth. Because isn't it the truth that we declare the truth of the gospel that, that Christians declare? And Jesus himself said he is the way and the life and the truth. And he said that no one could come to the Father but through him. There's another example, actually, if you go to the right in your Bible, you see a real-life example of how Jesus is addressing this issue. And in Matthew 23, 16 through 22... Just flip a couple pages there. We're going to get right into some woes, and this is going to be some deep stuff. Everybody ready for some deep stuff? If you go into the New Testament and Jesus says woe, that means you should say woe. Deep, I know. You should pause. Like, okay, what's happening here in this passage? Because he is saying woe because what he is, he is directly confronting someone who's doing the wrong thing. He's directly confronting them. So here's an example. He says, woe to you blind guides. Now the blind guides were the teachers of the law. They're the people that everybody else looked up to. They're like, oh, they know, they know the Bible of the day. They, need the, they know the Old Testament. They know the Mosaic law. They just know this stuff inside and out. They're the religious people with all the answers. They were the, what Jesus calls, blind guides. So people were, lead, people were being led by them. But Jesus says, you're blind. You don't even know where you're taking them. You don't even know what you're doing. You have so twisted the truth and so distorted the truth that the truth isn't even in you. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. 
you blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Again, he's correcting them. He's saying, whoa, what are you doing? You blind guides, you blind fools. And then he refers to them as blind men. He's like, what are you doing? Think about where you're, you're taking people. You are the ones who are supposed to be people known for the truth. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And in Matthew, excuse me, in, in James 5.12, you can obviously see that James had listened to the teachings of Jesus because he repeats some of the exact words. He says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. So obviously... Uh, James, being Jesus' half-brother, was privy to Jesus' teaching, and apparently he took it to heart because now James is writing this down, and he's saying do you, the way that you make oaths or promises or, 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 or vows says think about what you're doing. Instead, don't just be, you know, just say, well, I, I, I swear by heaven or earth or by anything else. He says, no, 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 let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. The two general explanations or definitions of, of the Greek word back in Matthew 5, it's, the, it's the, the word for oath, and it says, do not break your oath. What's being mentioned there is this idea of swearing falsely, to swear falsely. And to swear falsely, it means this, to swear that something is true when one knows that it is false. To swear that something is true when one knows that it is false. It can also mean to perjure oneself. This is a little bit more familiar. If you are older, you've seen TV shows where there's court or you've been in court. And uh, perjury is a word that is used to perjure oneself. Is to fail to do what one has promised under oath. Breaking one's oath. So in in some ways this, this word... Epeorkeo is the Greek word. It can mean to swear falsely or to perjure oneself about not breaking your oath. So this is all that, that's meant here. And by, by vowing to God and not fulfilling it, actually listen to this, by, by vowing to God you're going to do something and not fulfilling it, you're actually taking the Lord's name in vain. This is one of those commandments that people look at uh, from the Old Testament and they would say, no, I just don't understand like taking the Lord's name in vain. Maybe you, you use certain words and you don't use other words because it maybe references God in, in a lesser and uh, in, in just not the right way. And you say, well, maybe that's all that that means, like using God's name in vain. I'm not going to cuss and use certain words. And yet when uh, by vowing to God that we're going to do something and not fulfilling on what we committed to do, we're actually taking the Lord's name in vain because we've said by the authority of God, I'm going to fulfill this. And yet if we don't fulfill it, what we've done is we've said that something else was more important than him. We said, oh, I'm going to do this. God is my witness. I'm going to do this. And then if we don't do what we said that we were going to do, what we've just said is, God, you're not the prior anymore. Whatever that was, 
that we committed to do outside. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. And in the Old Testament, there's actually two clear um, explanations or where, where it's, it's really dialed in and written out of the Ten Commandments. One is in Exodus 20, and the other one is in Deuteronomy 5, verse 11, and this is what that passage says. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. An oath, because these things are, are complicated... As a matter of fact, whenever I was studying this out, there were so many of the people who wrote commentaries where they threw the, the oath, pledge, and promise, and vow like all together. They, they kind of threw it all together. And I don't believe it is all together. I think there's some subtle differences. And the first one I want to show is this, that an oath is a solemn declaration. It's a solemn declaration, usually based on an appeal to God, or some revered person, or a highly respected person, or an object uh, that someone will do something, some particular thing, like they're going to speak the truth, or perform a a particular act, or they're going to keep a promise. So it's saying, I'm going to do this, and they're basing on an appeal of God, saying, you know what, as God is my witness, I'm going to do this. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm going to speak the truth, and this is an oath. Like, if you're going to make an oath, and in our day, to go into the military, you have to swear an oath. Um, the Pledge of Allegiance is a sort of oath. These are, are types of things. And then there's also a vow. And a vow is a solemn promise made to the Lord, usually involving dedicating oneself or some possession to an act, of, to an act or a service or a way of life. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Somebody, maybe you're anticipating a tax return. Maybe not. But maybe you're anticipating a tax return and you're, you're struggling with it before you file your taxes and go to your CPA or go to TurboTax and you're wrestling with it and you say something to God like this, God, if you help me to get a return, I'll make sure that I'm generous with the money that I get back. That's a vow. You're dedicating oneself or some possession to an act or service or a way of life. You're saying, God, if you would do this, then I will do this. I've had many friends um, who have been uh, through addiction and, and been to break free from addiction, and they say things like this in the middle of addiction, uh, in recovery, excuse me, not addiction, but recovery, and maybe even while they're still in addiction, I guess. But they would say things like this, God, if you will help me break this addiction, I will devote the rest of my life to you. And there have been people who have who've been radically saved through that, clearly. And then there have been people who really didn't mean it, and then they fell right back in. To where it was just like, well, I'm just going to climb the ladder, and now I'm just going to use God's name, um, hoping that that name will give me some power outside of my experience and circumstances. Paul regularly made vows or oaths. This is one of the strong reasons why I believe that, that when it says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he's, that Jesus is not just dismissing every vow and oath and promise you'd ever make because Paul did this for himself and Paul's teachings never conflicted Jesus' teachings. So in Romans 1, 9 through 10, it says this, God whom I serve with my whole heart is preaching the gospel of his son. 
Notice what it says next, is my witness. In other words, he's saying, God is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He says, God is my witness of how I constantly remember you in my prayers and I'm not gonna forget you. I I didn't dismiss you, I care about you. And for this, this extended amount of time, and he says, Don't, I care for you. As God is my witness, I care for you. He says it in some other places too. This one's even more clear. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says this, I call God as my witness that it is in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And man, this, this particular passage, you need to read your Bible, this particular passage, he, Paul is just laboring over the fact that, that he's not gone to Corinth and, he, and he's basically saying to those people, he says, and it's really your blessing that God has, has withheld me from going. He spared me from going there because if I were to go there face to face right now, that, that I would have to say some pretty stern things to you. He says, so just consider this a blessing as God is my witness that it is in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Instead, I'm sending you a letter instead of myself. He says, as God is my witness. So he himself is claiming the highest authority. And I've got one more here. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 6, he's defending himself. He says, you know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And he's... He's attesting to his apostleship. He's attesting to the work of God through him. He says, this wasn't to benefit me. It was out of a love for, for God that God so loved me, and now I want to love you. He says, and I, and I never had to use flattery to get my way. I never, I never tried to be a people pleaser in a way that twisted the truth. I never did that. He says that I, I, never, covered this, I never covered my ministry up for, as a way Uh, of being greedy, and he says this. He says, God is our witness. Again, claiming the highest authority. So I think bringing these passages and a few others, I'll give you just a couple others. Actually, in Ruth 1, I believe in verse 16, Ruth uh, promises to Naomi, she says, wherever you go, I will go. Uh, Peter, he vows never to to deny Jesus. How did that work out? Right? He did deny him. But he says, I'll never deny you. And he does. Hannah, that would be Samuel's mother. Hannah promised she hadn't had a child, and she promised that if God would bring her and deliver her a child, that she would give that child up into the service of the Lord. And she, she did that, and she honored that, that vow, that promise to God. And Samuel turned out to be the finest judge, and his whole life was set apart. And he lived... Uh, with a Nazarite vow. And there was also a Nazarite vow of another gentleman who was supposed to be living, uh, he was supposed to be living under his whole life of this vow. And this gentleman was also a judge by the name of Samuel. Samuel's life was very twisted, though. He, he played this, this game um, with, with a woman who he should never have been involved with. And he played this little this sadistic sexual cat and mouse game with her and dismissing the vow that he was living under. And he basically just treated, he was just breaking that vow before God. 
And yet even in that you see God's grace because he was known as a man of faith because he actually accomplished the purpose that he had for him. There's such grace in God that even in the midst of our brokenness, God can use us. Amen? So bringing all of this, this scripture to mind, my, uh, my admonishment to you is this. Don't make quick vows or oaths. And maybe some of you don't need to make slow ones either. Don't make quick vows or oaths. And some of you don't need to make slow ones either. There are times where we should just, just stop. We should never outpace the Holy Spirit of God. If you're going to live a, a life of simplicity, never outpace the Holy Spirit of God. If you are outpacing the Holy Spirit of God, you are in dangerous ground. And it, and it leads to a path of regret. It leads to a pathway of destruction for yourself, for your soul, or for others. Never outpace the Holy Spirit of God. Don't make quick vows or oaths. Sometimes you shouldn't make slow ones either. And, and, and this is just such a part of us, even growing up. And it's certainly the way I was raised. And maybe it was for you, maybe it wasn't. But we say things like, well, I will, I will swear on a stack of Bibles. Who's ever heard that before, right? I will swear on a stack of Bibles. We'll say, well, and I don't even know why people would say this. This just cuts against the core. I mean, maybe it's just because of my story, too. People say things like, well, I swear on my mother's life, right? Or I, I swear on my grandmother's grave. Like, think about the words that people say, perhaps that you've said. Think about the power in that. Even as kids, and this one I really don't understand. And I know I said this one. It's like I cross my heart and hope to, what? The height. Like, what? What kind of sadistic kids were we? Stick a needle in my, like, really? Like, what in the world? And this is just such a part of us. Isn't it? Like growing up in, in this fallen world, it's just such a part of us. But truthfulness is the expression of a life of simplicity. Truthfulness is the expression of a life of simplicity. Letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Letting people, when they think about you, they think that is a person who stands for what is true. They stand by their word. If they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And if they can't do it, you're going to find out from them first. Because they want their yes to be yes and their no to be no. Christians claim to have the truth and they follow Jesus who is the truth. So if Christians claim to have the truth and yet they're to follow Jesus is the truth, if, if we live a life that, that has lies woven through it, then the very truth of the gospel message that we're supposed to be sending out is going to be skewed and it's not going to be believable. Because we won't be trusted. Do you understand that? So Christians claim to have the truth and they claim to be following Jesus who is the truth. Truthfulness is such a big part of a life of simplicity. To let your yes be yes and your no be no. Where your, your, your word means something. And a man or woman meets their commitments. And if they don't, you find out from them first. Because their yes is yes and their no is no. And why is this so profound? 
It's so profound for a believer, and perhaps you're not a believer. And this morning you've kind of walked in, and maybe you've been here a while, or you just came in for the first time, and you're not a believer. But let me just tell you the perspective of a, of a disciple of Jesus. The reason why it's such a big deal can be summed up in one verse. And 1 John 4.10 says this, This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice. That's the reason why we can be people who are known for the truth. It's because there was a time, there was a moment in our life where we, we came to an understanding of our sinful place before Almighty God. That He is a pure and holy and righteous God. And there, and there was a time where we realized there was nothing pure or holy or righteous in us. And yet because of the truth of this verse and so many others and the truth of, of this historical event and the, and the truth of what we're going to celebrate this Friday because the truth of this, that wasn't that we loved God, but that He loved us and that, that He sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice, as a covering for our sins. That we were radically saved from our sin. That our sin debt was paid that our salvation is secure, that our eternity is sure. That's the reason why. So the gospel message should be verifiable by the truth that comes out of our mouths. The gospel message should be verifiable by the truth that comes out of our mouths. It should. The gospel just isn't something that saves a person. It becomes the person. Our habits are then formed around the gospel message. The life of Christ in us, us pursuing Christ, to be like Christ, to become like Christ, and to do what Jesus did. That our, our decisions and our, our habits, everything is formed around the throne of Christ. That the gospel message should be verifiable by the truth that comes out of our mouths. I want to give you seven um, very practical things uh, to help answer this question. Why should we think twice before making a vow, pledge, or promise? And seven things. We're going to drill down on these for a moment, and we're in the final stretches of my talk. But I really want us to lean in to these seven things, because you may think, well, how does this even pertain to me? Like, does this even really matter? And man, it does. The first one is this. Vows are about actions in the future. And the future is something over which we have little or no control. The reason why we should slow roll making a commitment of our pledge or promise, the reason why we should slow, 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 or maybe not even make that pledge or promise, is because it's about actions in the future. And the future is something that, that we have little or no control of. So we should pause before we just say, yeah, I'm going to do that. Of course, I'll be there. I'll be there at five. We should pause for a minute and say, okay, can I be there at 5 if I'm committed somewhere else until 4.45? And it looks like I'm going to have to work overtime tonight. Should I really commit to this? Is that going to allow me to say my yes is yes and my no is no? Second thing is this. Vows are solemn and sacred, and they involve a power, and they involve powerful heavenly realities that we should not mess with. 
I mean, there is, there is so much power in the name of Jesus. And for us, we shouldn't dabble with that reality, and we shouldn't just swear something by the name of God. We should have a reverence when it comes to the name or the names of God. When it comes to God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, we should have a reverence when we address that. And not to do that, to, to speak of that in a demeaning or just a pithy way. Third one, we're going to drill down on this. Some people, like the Pharisees, they use vows to make people trust them so that they can trick and cheat others. Some people are like the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees did. They would, they would use these vows, pledges, and promises to trick people. And they would, they would manipulate people to make them trust them, to trick and cheat them. This is what it may look like today. It's maybe somebody is, is pursuing a dating relationship or they're in a dating relationship. And one person is a believer, one person is not a believer. And you both know it. Okay, that's an important piece. And you both know it. So the believer looks at the non-believer and says, wow, they're really nice, or he's really cute, or she's really pretty, or, or he's really smart, or she's really smart, or whatever the case may be. And yet, you know, the, the believer looks at the non-believer and says, wow, you know, he's, he's really a nice person. He's really a good person. He's really moral. He's, he's really good to his mom and his grandma. Like, he's just, really, he's just a nice guy. I know he doesn't love Jesus, but he's a really nice guy. And he proves that he's a nice guy, or she proves that she's a nice gal, by just attending church with you a couple times, just to prove, hey, or maybe they even, they even go another step and they say, well, you know what? Once we get married, I'm going to come to church every week. I'm going to come to church sitting right next with you. I want to be there with you. And what I've seen so many times is if a... Of if a non-believer partners with a believer and then they actually get married, the non-believer will then stay home and the believer will then be coming to church by themselves and they're in their home, they have divided loyalties. And then the non-believer, knowing what you see on the screen right now, the non-believer says, no, 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 we made vows. So now the non-believer uses the truth of the Scripture against the believer to hold that person in a relationship that they never should have been in in the first place. And it's using their word against them. When that non-believer should never have been in a marriage or even, I think, even a dating relationship with a believer. And yet, some people, like the Pharisees, they use vows to, to make people trust them so that they can trick or cheat others later. Another one is this. Breaking a vow can result in judgment, like we see in James, or the destruction of the work of our hands. We see this in Ecclesiastes. You may think, well, what, it, what does this even look like, like for sure? As a pastor, I've, I've had the unfortunate um, opportunity to sit amongst divorce hearings. And everything that they were striving for together, as soon as the relationship part, as soon as they part in that relationship, and as soon as you go in this divorce hearing, it's no longer your stuff together, it's all that stuff divided. 
and everything that you worked so hard for that was then is to the destruction of your hands, and everything you strive for now belongs to someone else as you're living apart. So, of course, breaking a vow can result in judgment and destruction. We're going to see the judgment part, too, once we get to Malachi in a minute. Another one. We may make a vow that depends on the actions of another person, and that person may act in such a way to make fulfilling the vow impossible. This is the reason why co-signing alone is discouraged in the Proverbs. Is saying, oh, I'm going to pay this. If they can't pay it, I'm going to pay it for them. Or I just want to guarantee that loan. We should really think twice before we do anything like that. Sixth one is this. Our circumstances may change so that we cannot keep a vow or pledge. Our circumstances may change. I'm not just talking about us changing our mind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about even... A sin issue. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying the circumstances may, may change. You say, oh, I'm going to give I'm going to give this certain amount of money. I just I, I, I'm just going to do that. And yet if you act out of what you think is going to be a surplus and yet you don't have that surplus, then the, the, the money that you vowed. You can't uh, you can't meet that commitment on the money that you vowed. Circumstances may change. Last one, we may construct the vow in absolute terms using the words such as always or never. In reality, life is too complex to say that you will always do X or never do Y. Like, we, don't we just know this? Have you ever told God, you know what, God, I, I am never going to do this. And then automatically, the circumstances of which were not in your control, but were definitely under God's control. The very thing you told God, well, I'm never going to. And then God says, ha, 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 ha. Guess what? You're going to. Pledges, vows, and oaths are accepted when they're part of a covenant. I want to fly through these things really quickly. I apologize for not being able to drill down on them. But uh, we see the first is the Davidic covenant. This is in Psalm 132, 11 and 12. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne if your sons keep my covenant and the statues I teach them, then your sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. The Lord swore an oath to David. So the Lord swore an oath to David. Or a promise. Part of the Davidic covenant. And then we see the Abrahamic covenant. Here we see another one in Genesis 26, verse 3. This is the message to Isaac. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath... I swore to your father, Abraham. And the last one I want to talk about, I could give more, but for the sake of time, I won't. I would uh, just invite you to go to the left in your Bible, just a short ways into Malachi. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament. And, uh, and in Malachi, he connects the idea of a marriage covenant. The marriage covenant. Malachi... 2 verse 13 through 16 says this another thing you do you flood the Lord's altar with tears you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands you ask why 
It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith, broken the vow with her is what other translations say. You've broken your vow with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. There it is, covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Don't break the vow with the wife of your youth. This is what God says. And this is such a firm word. And I cannot even convey it as how, how, how firm God is in this. He says, I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Do not break your vows. Again, it's acceptable when it's in the middle of a covenant. Three different examples. There's another example. I won't be able to get there. Maybe you want to write this source down. You can look it up later. In Matthew 19, 1 through 9, you see that Jesus also goes back into um, the, some very clear teaching on marriage and how it's a covenant and how it's bound to a vow, not just vowing to a person, but you're, you're vowing and covenanting with Almighty God. So why do people break vows? Sometimes because they, they're operating with uncontrolled lusts. Maybe just the root of it, selfishness or certainly pride. People tend to overcommit and they underpromise because of their limited time constraints. These are fairly honest reasons. Maybe they just underdeliver because they're ill-prepared. Where it's in their heart to do it, they're just ill-prepared. Or maybe they've just overpromised because they have a hard time letting someone down. To where they always say yes, even though they know that their schedule says no. So they always say yes. Or perhaps they underdeliver because they deny their own limitations. Sadly, what usually happens when people break their vows are one of three things. They either protect by justifying what happened. So they protect himself. It's all ego. It's all pride driven. They try and protect himself. Well, they say, well, the reason why I broke my vow is because this person did this and they weren't doing this and they became this and they became unstable here. And if you, if you would know the words they said to me and, and they protect by justifying what happened or they project by smearing the person, then this is just a character assassination on the person that they vowed to be with. Certainly true of marriage. By smearing the person. Well, if you, they were just a different person when we got married. That's true of every married couple, by the way. Everybody changes. Well, they're just different. You, if you would just know the things that, that she said or he said or, or they did and, and what it is, it's a matter of it's justifying, but it's projecting on them by smearing their character. All the while, you broke your vow. Or lastly, they protect. Excuse me, not protect. That was the first one. They promise. They say, well, I just promise I'll never do it again. I promise I'll never do it again. So they protect by justifying what happened. They project by smearing the person, just going a character assassination. 
Or then they just promise, well, I'll just never do it again. All the while dishonoring God, perhaps taking the Lord's name in vain, dishonoring the person or the people that they've committed to, vowed to, pledged to, whatever the case may be. And a life of simplicity is lived out by sticking to one's vows and by honoring your commitments. That's today's bottom line. A life of simplicity is lived out by sticking to your vows, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, and by meeting your commitments. So I'm going to give you five, five takeaways, and then I am through. The five takeaways are, the first one, avoid double-minded indecision by keeping your commitments. Avoid double-minded indecisions or indecision by keeping your commitments. Once you say you're going to do something, don't go through and then start reasoning why you shouldn't or why you can't. If you said you're going to, you should have gone into that slowly and you've slowly made this decision. Now stick to that decision, even though maybe the circumstances might change, but yet you're going to let your yes be yes and your no be no. So you're not double-minded as we're warned uh, against in James. Second thing, honor your word. Honor your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Third one, give true testimonies. Whether you're in a court setting or whether it's, it's somebody wondering, hey, what did that person say? Were they talking bad about me? Give true testimonies about the truth at hand. Whatever the situation is or circumstances, we should be people who are, who are known and defined and refined by the truth. Give true testimonies. Fourth one, stop telling lies that you swear are the truth. Stop telling lies that you swear are the truth. And this one's a little harsh, I understand. But the person who gets offended the most by this is you. Because many times we tell ourselves lies and we seek to convince ourselves that they're true. And last, think long before committing long. Think long before committing long. If you're going to make a long-term commitment, it doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's marriage, whether it's a house, whether it's a car, think long before committing long. Don't just jump into it. Because once you're into it, then you're going to let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then you have to deal with consequences, circumstances, whatever the case may be. We're seeking a life of simplicity to will and want one thing, Jesus Christ at the center. Let us pray together. Father, we come to you today, and I am so in awe of your grace. I'm in awe of the way that you care for us and the way that you displayed love. And in no way did we show love to you but yet you loved us by sending your son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that needs to be received in more than just an intellectual way. It needs to be received at the, at the level of our soul. Because it's, it's in our heart and in our soul that decisions are made, that affections are formed, and that our attitudes are lived out.
God, help us, each and every one, to live a life of simplicity. And maybe for that one person who's not a follower of Jesus, and, and maybe just that the truth of 1 John 4.10 is just so real to them right now. God, lead them to have a conversation with myself or someone else to maybe see how they can take their faith to the next level. In all things, God, help us to honor you and to honor our word. Amen. Amen.